Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Today, my guest is Beth Miller. Beth is the Executive Director of the Creative Education Foundation, or CEF as it's known. CEF is a nonprofit dedicated to creativity, innovation, leadership, education, and training. Beth also happens to be the epicenter of the SIPSI conference that I'm attending this week. SIPSI is Creative Problem Solving Institute. Today, Beth and I chat about what bravery looks like when you're in it and how to draw on it when you really need it. But before we dive in, I want to give you a content warning because this episode deals with some tough stuff. Beth and I touch on personal traumas, particularly her experience with sexual assault. We discuss Beth's experience factually, because this is how Beth is most comfortable in mediating the topic. Beth is truly the embodiment of learning from failure and being adaptable. Here she is. Beth. I'm going to look at this as a cup of coffee at the University of Buffalo sitting outside uh, close to the pond like <laughs> yes. with with the geese or the ducks or both or whatever is around because <laughs> I I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Mm. I've I've loved all the deep diving I'm doing. So, let me hit it this way. Today we have the extreme pleasure of welcoming Beth Miller, who is the executive director of the Creative Education Foundation. Mm-hmm. That's how Beth and I first connected, although I think the only relationship we've had is on screen. Am I right? That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, we connected, I believe, last year at SIPSI. Mm-hmm. So SIPSI stands for Creative Problem Solving Institute, mm-hmm. and SIPSI has a conference once a year. And usually it's live. And in 2020, it wasn't. And I think all of us came to it with real fear and trepidation. Mm. And it was so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We were very excited with how everything came out. And as you can imagine, it was it was scary for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, Sipsy is our big show every year. And right when we were um, we're in the thick of selling tickets and getting it all set up and the pandemic hits and there were so many uh, questions circulating in the event industry and nonprofit industry uh, about do you do it, do you not do it? And we're watching South by Southwest get canceled and these other events. And I'm like, you know what? Um, creativity is really important and I don't want to put anyone in physical danger for it. So um, let's let's use creative problem solving and figure out how we can we can pull this off um, differently. Uh, and it, w- it was very scary. I mean, SIPSI doesn't make our nonprofit a ton of money, but it does provide most of our operational expenses. So canceling it as a live event put a six-figure hole in our six-figure budget, which is significant yeah. for us. So that was that was scary. Um, but I work with this amazing group of women who are expert creative problem solvers in their own right, Beth Slazak and Missy Carvin, uh, and our coworker, Jamie, who's kind of the office mom and keeps all the, all the wheels on the bus. Um, everyone just put their heads together and came up with this virtual conference and everybody raised their hand to help. That was the other pieces, you know, Marilyn, of our conferences, all people volunteer to teach. They bring their creativity expertise to teach for us and to benefit the organization we filled all of the spots like within the first week, like everyone just raised their hand and said, I want to, I want to help. And, and that combination of our amazing volunteers lending their expertise and our staff not being afraid in the face of 
ambiguity and change, we were able to pull off a really great virtual conference. It it was my favorite experience mm. of 2020. Oh. <laughs> I was I was so uh, questioning of whether mm. or not it would come through because so much around mm-hmm. Sipsy is the live, the interaction, yep. the the play, the the, the classes, the mm-hmm. even the dining experience at the University of Upper State yep. New York in Buffalo. And in on some level, it was such a gift because I met through the virtual uh, Sipsy, I met so many people from all around the world that that were able just to tune in that that wouldn't have come from China, Singapore, yep. South Africa. Because it would have been way too much money, I would guess. Yeah, exactly right. So so doing it virtually created a whole other level of accessibility to folks who were um, in further flung places. And so that that was really amazing. We had a lot of folks who had heard about Sipsy for years and years and had never really made the decision to go because of that, the obstacle of travel or the expense. And this opportunity to offer the the content of the conference at a lower price point, and you didn't have to leave your home to do it and rearrange your work schedule or childcare schedule, that created um, an opportunity for a lot of folks who couldn't attend in the past. And the upside is, you know, afterwards, they're like, oh, I have to go now. Now <laughs> They've had the taste of it. They really do want to be there in person yeah. to have that great interaction that you do get in person. Yeah. There was a lot of there was definitely a lot of sipsy first timers and I was mm-hmm. thrilled and you're right it's a, it's a bit of a um try before you buy although mm-hmm. your pricing is always amazingly oh, thanks. <laughs> low compared to the value that you provide but mm-hmm. this gave him an opportunity as like if hey if you loved it virtually they're going to go wild when they get the opportunity of going in person we hope yeah. You know, one of the, there were a couple of unanticipated um, benefits that we saw. So in the interaction component, we were worried about that because that is such a big part of the experience of going to the conference. Um, but what we found was that in the sessions, people would, um, so say a presenter might bring up an author that he had read and recommended it, um, but he was, that's not what he was talking about, but he just mentioned it. And so someone in the chat would be like, who is that author? And someone would write the answer or what's creative problem solving? And so these very robust conversations started happening in the chat while workshops were going on. And it wasn't distracting. Like that would be wildly distracting if it was in person, but it worked in the virtual space. So there was this new kind of interaction that was able to happen via the chat stream while a workshop was going on. So that tapped a whole different level of interactivity and information sharing that may not have happened if you weren't able to have a simultaneous conversation with an entire group group. Um, you can't do that in person. You're having one-on-one conversations. So that was a new element uh, that I think was really beneficial to folks. You guys rocked my world with it. You really <laughs> did. And and in this is my this is my one place in the year where I throw myself in and immerse myself. And and my husband actually said to me, mm-hmm. I can tell you're experiencing Sipsy because you come out of your office after experiencing these various workshops. Mm-hmm. And you're uplifted and you show me all the things you've been doing and the creative that you've, the the, the building of materials and drawings and things. Mm-hmm. It uh, it was life-changing in, in a year where we all needed that creative outlet so desperately. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. It's amazing to hear that. Thank you. Now, Beth, we got together when I first chatted with you about 
hey, I'm going to do a podcast mm-hmm. and it's going to be all about brave. It's going to be all about breaking brave. And little did I know before yeah. we started to dive into who you are and in, in, in your journey in life, how much courage and how much bravery you've had to display mm. and had to put forward in the world of what you've lived through. So maybe we start with your dad was brought home to die at age 39 yep. with an inoperable brain tumor. Correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, just to bounce off something you just said, you know, we're, we're never usually brave until we have to be, right? It's a situation that comes upon us and then uh, then we find out. Uh, my my father worked at a big apartment complex. He was the head of maintenance um, at this apartment complex, which is where we lived. And I remember um, it was my the, my last really distinct memory before he got sick was my sweet sixteen, which was on November November ninth. He threw me a surprise party, and I remember going out to thank him. And we were at the um, community center for the apartment complex. And he just, he was off, you know, his energy was really low and, um, and he had been having weird mood swings for the last few months. And we thought it was because there was a new owner for the apartment complex and he was worried about our job and, um, his job being in jeopardy meant our house was in jeopardy because that was part of his pay. And so we just weren't really sure, um, but otherwise young and healthy. And mm-hmm. um, it was just a few weeks later, we got a call from the the main office. He had collapsed at work and had been brought to the hospital. Um, my dad was the kind of guy who used to work with double pneumonia, stuff like that. So for him to have a just, medical... Just keep on going work ethic, exactly. no matter what. Exactly. I've got to get out there and support and look after my family. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for, for that kind of episode to happen where folks stepped in, uh, you know, we knew it was pretty critical. Um, they did a bunch of tests and ultimately ended up with a CAT scan. And I wasn't there for this since my mom reporting to this to me afterwards. Uh, she told me that the two, uh, the, the two doctors who were examining him, let him know, let her know that it was, um, this melanoma, uh, in his, his frontal lobe. And it was, um, it was not operable. Um, and they, my mom recounts telling it, um, they were hesitant to give her the prognosis. And my mom is like, I'm a nurse. Tell me what, tell me what's going on. And uh, they did. And they, they were just heartbroken because it was a young family and it was, it was a death sentence. So my mother um, had to make a decision about, you know, what to do. And she decided that she would bring him home. Um, and my mother at the time was a gerontological nurse. So she worked with elder folks and one of her big priorities as a nurse was to help people have dignified deaths. And then she had to face it with her young husband. So at 39, so 39. It's, it, it's cruel, right? Because mm-hmm. your mom would go, from what I understand, and if I've got my facts here mm-hmm. wrong, Beth, please stop and correct me. Your mom would be working during the day mm-hmm. at a nursing home, if yep. I'm correct, with, with older people. Mm-hmm. And yet then she's coming home to tend for her husband, who's 39. Yep. That must have been like a knife through her heart. Yeah, so she's she's nursing 24/7. Um and and she's got a, a 16-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son. So, um you know, there's the two of us and and dealing with her own grief. Um so it it was it was a lot. Um so we did. We brought him home, hired a nurse to work during the day. Christopher and I, uh, my brother's Christopher, um, continued to go to school and try to be keep things as normal as possible. 
Um, and it was in many ways the worst of, of a prolonged death and a fast death. Like it was, a, it was, it was finding out he was going to die was fast, like a heart attack, but then for three months to watch his decline, um, and, and just be there as a, a young kid trying to process all this. And, you know, we're young, so none of our friends knew how to process this with us at all. Um, so it was just, uh, it was very difficult. There, there are big swatches of that time in my life that I don't remember. Um, mm-hmm. You just, you just kind of forget. Um, you have to. It's yeah. like a, it's a mechanism. I think that your soul puts, mm-hmm. puts a blackout piece over top of that because sometimes, especially at sixteen years of age, mm-hmm. it's just too hard yeah. to deal with it. Exactly right. Exactly right. So my my mom is um, from a was from a big family up in Maine, and she's the oldest of eight. And her youngest brother Joel um, came in to live with us. I'm the oldest of the next generation, so Joel and I are actually only like nine years apart. So he's kind of like a big brother to me. Um, but Joel moved in and helped us. Um, just manage the household. He just was there to be support for my mom and um, for giving Chris and I rides to swim team practice and things like that. So. So we, and we had, oh my God, we had so much food. My father was, my mom always said she could never say no to me or my father. <laughs> that we were, uh, we were too charming. Um, so my, my dad, everyone loved my father. And I know we tend I to- I can imagine. We tend to saint our dad. I, I know that we do that. But my dad was really, really well loved. He really enjoyed people. Um, and uh, it just, people were devastated. You know, they couldn't believe David, this this man who was so full of life, was facing this and then his young family was. So I just remember just so much food coming to the house and, and people- Everybody uh, arriving with a casserole. Everybody. Absolutely. Everybody offering to help us out with school stuff. And, you know, there was, I remember just people being around um, and, and trying to help as best they could. Um, and my friends trying to help as best they could. And uh, I always appreciated that. I didn't have the bandwidth to thank them, but um, we weren't alone. And, uh, you know, as it got closer, um, he was diagnosed, it was like the week before Christmas uh, in, in 1984. And he passed, actually, we're, we just passed the anniversary of his death was March 2nd, 1985. And the, the couple days before he died, my mom kind of, she must've kind of known because Mm -hmm. the house was suddenly full of family. And I remember being in the living room and we had an apartment. We didn't have a big house, a small apartment. And they were all in the room with my dad. And, uh, I remember being in the living room watching a Duran Duran video. And my aunt Loie came out and said, it's over. And that was it. And I went in to say goodbye. Indescribable. Yeah. So. If you want to or are willing to talk about it, um, of two weeks prior to your dad passing, Mm -hmm. a friend who invited you out because that friend wanted to be there for you. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is a young man in my life who had been a friend. He's like, you must want to get out of the house. And um, so I was, yeah, I do want to get out of the house. And we ended up parking and, um, and he raped me. And um, that was my first experience of sex. And it was two weeks before my father passed. And I couldn't, I couldn't bring that into my house on top of everything else. I couldn't bring that helplessness to my father on top of him having just gone blind and facing his death or my mother. Like I just, I couldn't, you know, on top of all the other, the shame and what did I do? And on top of all of that, um, how could I, how could I do that to them? 
as well. So I just, I just buried that. I didn't, I didn't tell anyone for years and years and years. Um, but that, those two events in, cl- in close sequence, you know, really informed a lot of my development in how I saw myself in the world, um, the formation of my, my sexuality, of feeling abandoned and, and wounded um, in multiple ways. Um, you know, it, it explains a lot of the, the struggle that came afterwards, but I, mm-hmm. I always had a good front, you know, so I'm still getting oh, A's, yeah. right? I'm still getting A's. I'm still the first flute in the band. I'm still, that summer I was selected to travel with an international tour of musicians from across the United States. Um, so I'm still excelling like crazy. I, I was also wearing my father's clothes to school. I also got a mohawk. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> you know, there were things that were signs that if people had seen them, but I I really held it together. Um, and the, the cracks yeah. started to show later when I went off to college for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, you can't bury that Mm-mm. forever. Eventually, no. it's going to come back, and it's going to come back as a seven-headed monster instead mm-hmm. of a three-headed monster. But mm-hmm. two weeks before he's going to leave us mm-hmm. and you bring this home you 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 couldn't I'm so sorry I'm so sorry you had to go through that the yeah. way you did we talk just for a moment about your dad about mm. David and the fact that what I understand is that his dying wish was for you to attend college correct because he had been in the army and did a tour of Vietnam at least yep. one Yep. And so, therefore, never had that opportunity. And then when he came back, he started his family and had you and Christopher. Mm-hmm. And and so he really wanted that education for you. He did. And, and that became, um, you know, a dying wish is a, is a big thing. You know, and I when he, he's like, I really want you to go to college. And, and it was in response because I it was one moment of clarity I actually had with him because it was hard for me to talk to him while he was dying. Was, I thought if I ignored it, it would go away. Um, but I, I told him that I was having some, you know, reservations about going to school. I was worried about my family and money, quite frankly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was also exhausted. I didn't, I couldn't see how going, I could do this. Um, and I just said, you know, maybe I should take a year off. And he says, no, you need to go right away. I, I really want you to get your degree and, you know, my dad enlisted right out of high school and went to, to Vietnam because he believed it was the right thing to do. And um, he saw a lot of awful things. And he really, he really couldn't even imagine. Yeah. He couldn't even imagine what, what the bravest folks in the world, I believe, saw mm-hmm. and then came home and back then just expected to assimilate back into yep. society like really nothing happened mm-hmm. and all the PTSD they must have gone through and all of the horrific things but nobody then acknowledged the pain right. that they brought home with them. Right. My, it's actually a funny story. When my, my dad came back from Vietnam, um, he heard there was, this is up in Maine where my family um, were from, and he heard there was a party with a lot of hot nurses. So he and his buddies crashed it. And that's what, that's where he met my mom. Um, while he was at the party, he had a crew cut. And this is, you know, this is 67. So um, people had much groovier uh, hair, hair back then if you weren't in the military. So it, he's re- remembered people calling him a baby killer at that meet, at that party because um, he had a crew cut. 
And um, so, but that's how we met my mom. He crashed a party and he showed up the next morning at like seven in the morning. My mom's like, why is this guy here? And he's like, I came to help you clean up after the party because they had rented that camp on the lake. And a funny future story, we now own a camp on that very lake where my, my mom and dad met. Uh, so many years ago. That's but, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. well, and, and doesn't that show the soul of your father? Oh, yeah. I absolutely. came to help you clean up. Yep. I also think you're just incredible <laughs> and I want to get to know you better. Yep. On bracket. Exactly. But, but I'm, I'm willing to help you clean up. That's yep. great. That was my dad. <laughs> and so you went to Syracuse University. Yeah, I, I went to Syracuse. Um, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a journalist. And Syracuse had one of the better journalism programs um, on the East Coast, which was affordable for us. So I went there. I also had an opportunity to swim there, and that was a Division One school. But I just, um, I just, I couldn't. It was just too much to try to to do that. And so the tough thing about being a first generation student is you don't know how college works. Right. I didn't mm-hmm. know what a I didn't know what a bursar was. Like I didn't really I didn't have good help. Even though I had an advisor, they didn't give me great help about what kinds of classes to take. So and I could get around like signing up for stuff without getting his approval. And I did. And I just my my transcript was a mess. Like I just was taking classes all over the place and um, I was just, I was away from home, and this is before cell phones, right? I had to wait for the payphone if I wanted to call home. Yeah, and um, and, and I just was, I was so sad. I was just so sad, and I just, I'm yeah. surrounded by all these other, you know, all these other kids my age. I was a little young for, I was 17. I have a early birthday or late birthday, however you look at it. So everyone else is like 18 and 19, and I'm 17. Yeah, and at that age, Beth, that makes such a huge difference, right? It, it really did. And everyone just seemed so normal. You know, everyone's lives yeah. seemed so normal, and they all seemed to know what they were doing. So I didn't feel like I could ask for help without looking like a complete bumpkin, complete idiot. So um, I just started, I missed classes. I would sleep through them. I'd be up all night and sleep all day and obviously did not get very good grades. Um, I actually had a young, a family, a friend, um, who befriend, a friend that got to know me in one of my classes and her parents were trying really hard to kind of help me, um, get through, uh, the, the third semester I was there. Um, he was a professor at the school and he was kind of pulling some strings to get me some slack because he knew what I was going through. And, um, then my mom called me up. It was first semester of my sophomore year, sophomore year. And she said, honey, we're out of money. And, and that was it. So, I mean, I had a 0.6 0.6 grade average anyway. So I just, I just came home and, um, you know, I was, I'd always worked. I'd been working since I was 13 as a babysitter and started lifeguarding again. And, um, I joined a triathlon team. Uh, so I had two girlfriends, one who biked and one who ran, and I was the swimmer and we would sign up for, for sprint triathlon. So I would do the one or two mile swim and then tag off to my friend and she would do the bike and our other friend would run. And that gave me some direction and I connected with my athleticism again and I got some confidence back. And so I started taking some part-time classes at a local college and I got A's. And so that built my confidence again. And I enrolled at Central Connecticut State University, again, just a couple classes. But um, since I was still training, I would go to the, the pool and work out. So I was swimming laps one day. I stopped to get a drink of water and the swim coach was there and he says, Hey, um, can you swim butterfly? And I said, yeah. And he says, could you swim a couple laps for me? I'm like, sure. And then so I swam a couple laps of butterfly. And he says, do you want to join the swim team? 
<laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. sure. I said, um, I'm not a full-time student. He says, well, we'll just get you full-time status. I can probably get you some scholarship money. So I ended up being, yeah. So I ended up being a walk-on for Central Connecticut State's Division One um, swim team and got going to school full-time. Um, and that was great for a little while. But the thing about Division One eligibility is that when you started a Division One school, your eligibility starts ticking away. So because I had started at Syracuse, even though I hadn't swum there, um, I had already lost a lot of eligibility. So I really, by the time I was at Central, I only had a year and a half left. And um, swimming at the Division One level, any Division One sport is, um, you know, we had double practices on on Thursdays and Saturdays, so 5 a.m. and then again at 3 p.m. And then you swam every day except for Sunday. And, um, you know, you just smell like chlorine all the time. And and it's hard to study. You're exhausted. It's a lot to manage. So I wasn't, I was doing okay. You know, the classes I liked, I did well. And the ones I didn't like, I didn't do well. And, and I ran out of eligibility um, for yeah. swimming. And then I kind of lost my heart for, I just, it just felt too hard again. So I quit and ended up being a nanny and a bartender. Um, and I thought that was what my life was going to be um, until yeah. the family I nannied for said, you need to go back to college. You're too smart to, um, there's more you can do. And uh, they encouraged me to apply to an adult education program at Trinity College, which is where I ended up and where I graduated from. Absolutely. And Trinity College is in Hartford, Connecticut. Correct. Uh, Trinity College is considered a third-tier Ivy League. Um, it's a smaller Division three school. Uh, they are a liberal arts, kind of New England-y liberal arts school. They're in uh, the NESCAC um, group. So um, uh, Bowdoin, um, you know, those schools like that are in that group. So smaller, very strong liberal arts schools. Beautiful. Yeah. And... Um, you met what you thought might have been the love of your life in the bartending world and yep. married that individual. Yes, yes. Uh, so some of the repercussions of um, my early experience with um, losing my dad and and uh, my rape, uh, I made some gr- not so great choices about men. Um, I, I, I realized, like, looking back at it, that I, I think I never wanted to love anyone that much because I didn't want to mm-hmm. lose them. So if they were someone... Yeah, I was afraid. So I, but I wanted to be partnered. So I would choose folks that I, but I never really got close to them, or there was some kind of flaw that that got in the way of that, or there was a distance in the relationship, and that was that kind of dysfunctional choosing that came from that that high degree of trauma um, was when I was figuring out relationships. So, but it's incredible. Um, you can you you dissect it now. You understand it. Now. Oh, yeah. You see it clearly now. So mm-hmm. many people that walk through life with PTSD or CPTSD mm-hmm. that never figure it out. Right. And and you have. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I hope I figured it out. <laughs> so you, you met and married a bartender while yep. you were bartending, and then yep. an ACL blew, and then you had to kill your bartending career. Yep. <laughs> and what took place? So, uh, yeah, so I blew out my ACL. I've got this hip to ankle uh, leg brace on. And um, I, my husband at the time was earning the most money. So I said, listen, I'm already part-time in school. You're supporting us for the most part anyway. Why don't I just stop working and take more classes? Then I can finish sooner and then you can go back to school. And that was the plan. 
So I go back, I'm back in school, I'm doing really great, I'm getting really excited. And, you know, as I look back on this now, that, that was when our relationship started to deteriorate. Um, and I, I think it was really the, he was always the smart one in the relationship. And I started challenging him a lot more. I started uh. having different kinds of conversations and that started kind of showing the cracks in our relationship. You know, when I, I was the sidekick, it was fine. But when I started being, getting stronger, um, yeah. Not so much. Not so fine. Yeah. So, um, yeah, things things got bad. He wasn't coming home. Um, he was being kind of cruel to me. Um, Emotional I, abuse is what I what yes. I yes. Yeah. I'm here. I am. I'm. I don't have a job. I'm recovering from a major leg reconstruction and our knee reconstruction, and um, I'm I'm part time. Like if I. If I leave him, I don't have anywhere to live. I don't have any money. Um, and I have to quit school again, which felt like the biggest failure ever to fail three times would have been awful to me. So uh, what happened was I was offered a job as an academic mentor. And it's a program that Trinity has called the First Year Program. Mm-hmm. And basically, academic mentors are, are <laughs> I always describe it as the good cop to the the um, the bad cop of the RA, the resident assistant. So the, the mentors would be assigned um, a group of first-year students, usually 16, 18 students, that you took a first-year seminar class with and helped them learn to negotiate college, you know, how to write papers and, and all of that. And particularly with my history, I'm like, oh, I can help you with this because I found out the hard way how not to do things. So they offered me this job. And typically that comes with a dorm room. And I had declined the dorm room because I had a, a two-bedroom apartment. And then my relationship was falling apart. And I realized I just, I couldn't stay. I couldn't stay. And I went to the first-year program director and I said, um, things are not good for me at home. Uh, Is that single room still available through the mentor program? She says, it's right upstairs if you want to see it. And I said, yep. I said, I want to go see it. So she brings me upstairs in the dormitory and opens the door to this room. It is the teeniest, tiniest room. I had the most beautiful apartment. It's this teeny, tiny room. So I I walked into the room and I burst into tears and I said, I'll take it. (laughs) That was was it. So I I left uh, my first husband and I moved in with the folks that I nannied for. They, um, it was the summer at this point between semesters. So I stayed with them. Um, They've always been my safe place to land. Uh, They had plenty of room. So I I stayed with them and we bartered childcare and um, housework and stuff for room and board. And Good then I you. then I moved into um, I moved into a first year dormitory as a thirty year old woman with a bunch of eighteen year olds handling my own divorce and it was it was insane. I, I remember we had a, a dorm kind of a dorm rules meeting with the resident assistant and they're going over everything we couldn't have in the room. You know, so it's first year college first year dorm. So even if you're of age, there'll be no alcohol, no no candles, like all these things. And I raised my I raised my hand and I said, "Listen, I'm 30 years old handling my own divorce. There will be alcohol in my room. I'm just telling you. <laughs> if you want to throw me out for that, that's fine. But you know, I'll just tell you now. <laughs> this is what's happening." I will be the exception to that rule. <laughs> just want you all to know. <laughs> and I do remember them coming around and doing dorm checks and uh, they would check to see that I'd have a candle burning. I'm drinking a Chardonnay while doing my homework and they would like toast me and like leave. They would just like, that's good. <laughs> You're okay. If this is She's keeping okay. you together, Beth, then for sure, go for it. Just blow out the candle before you pour another glass of Chardonnay, right? Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, that was... Um, 
it was a crazy time. I'm, I'm, I'm 10 years older than any of the other mentors, more than that of any of the, the young people that I'm trying to help negotiate college. And I'm dealing with all this life stuff and um, taking a full load of classes. I was playing in a flute quartet. I was a writing tutor at the writing center and I, I was a top student. I ended up uh, graduating 12th in my class. I had a 3.82 cumulative grade point average. I wrote a lot of major papers. One of them um, actually became, was later adapted or the inspiration for a play that was staged here in Boston. I am so excited to talk about that next. I am so excited because I learned so much doing the research about this <laughs> particular project where the paper and then then the play. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you said something along the line, courage or bravery is not pretty. Mm-mm. It has a runny nose. Yeah. Yeah, you have to persevere through the pain, the mm-hmm. doubt, and the loss. So, it just I, I, when you say it's not pretty, it has a runny nose. I just love you to yeah. expand on that a little bit. So, I think in our minds when we when we think of iconographic kind of courage, you know, you think of Braveheart charging mm-hmm. in front of the troops with mm-hmm. his war pain and the mm-hmm. sword aloft, and it was like, yes, you know, and, and it feels, I mean, they're about to go into danger, but there's an element of it feels good, like you're you're charging forward and you're sure of what you're doing. Every one of us is courageous all the time. I think this past year, as so many of us have been faced with uh, so many moments of uncertainty and fearfulness, and when you're in that moment, you're like, I got it. Like that's that's not how we approach it. We're we're we'll yeah. find ourselves in the middle of of despair or injury or loss. And um you have to get in the shower. Um you have to get the kids to school. You have to pay the bill. Uh, you have to find a way. And that is hard and it doesn't feel good and it doesn't look like courage. Um, it's messy. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. Courage is courage is messy. And we don't often realize we've been courageous until we look back and we say, oh, I can't believe I did that. You know, how did I, how yeah. did I do that? Like we don't even really, can't even really process, but it's, it's putting one foot in front of the other. And I, and when I say that, I don't want to, um, you know, diminish, um, like if someone is depressed or dealing with some really real stuff, it, it doesn't, I don't want to say you can just buck up and do it. That's not the case. Um, and even if you're, you're in depression, a lot of those moments when I was forging my way through or floundering, um, I was deep in depression. Um, but I was, I was able to kind of move forward, probably just stubbornness more than anything, but there, there's courage in it. Um, if I, if I had it to do over again, I would have asked for help so much sooner so much sooner i wouldn't have kept that secret from my parents i i would have i would have said i can't go to school right now daddy i'm sorry i know it means a lot to you but i need to take a break i yeah. would have if i had felt like i didn't have to be the strong one i would have spoken up and i probably would have had a lot more years behind me in my professional career and my security i probably wouldn't have gone through two bad marriages um so so courage is um yes walking through it but I think I would redefine courage in a way now in that you don't do it alone. You know, you you get the help that you need. And I, I lean on my friends a lot more than I ever did before. I don't live that isolated life. So learning about courage um, 
it can change as you as you absolutely mature. <laughs> but it's it's just not pretty. It's so many of us feel as if we have to shoulder it. You learn to shoulder it and not mm-hmm. ask for help because that somehow determines like a weakness. But right as you get older, you do realize that people are there for you and they want to be there for you. Like mm-hmm. this family, the mom's name, Karen, little girl, Elena. Correct. That, yes. that you lived with mm-hmm. um, while you were going to school and they supported you and were really the reason that you found Trinity College, right? Absolutely. And and they were the ones who taught me to talk about stuff. Um, it probably helped that, that Karen was a therapist. So that was... An, oh, was an, she? Okay, well, then yeah. there's a gift from the manna from heaven is like, right. we're going to just uh, make you a nanny at a therapist house. That's <laughs> exactly. helpful. Exactly. And her husband, Mark, was also a therapist. So Okay, fantastic. Uh, yeah, so I had a tag team. And, um, and the thing was that, like, you know... I felt like a pr- pretty, pretty much like damaged goods at that point in my life. And they always saw my light and that wasn't something I had always had. Um, so they knew everything about me and still thought I was great. And that was really, really important. That gave me a faith in myself that I didn't have. And they showed me how to have conversations about real stuff and also showed me that I, I learned that, um, Sometimes when you talk about stuff, it doesn't mean you're going to get an answer. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're going to get the path forward. It may just mean that you need to talk about it. I, just today, I had staff meeting with with our team at at Creative Education Foundation, and we we start every day every every meeting. Um, we talk about something we did well well the week before, something we're excited about for the organization, something we want to work on, and things that are stressing us out. And as we were sharing this, I realized. <laughs> Everyone's we're exhausted and, and our energy yeah. is really low and we're trying to hold this space for all these people so that they feel creative and inspired and we're in the yeah. slog too. So it's hard. And I said, you know what? I said, I'm I'm canceling the agenda. So we're not gonna talk about the stuff we have to do. Let's just talk and let's just um, talk. Yeah. Let's just talk. Let's just connect. Let's hear what, what's going on. And I said, I don't have a brilliant design for how this is going to go because I'm tired too, but let's just talk. And and we didn't fix anything in our lives, but we connected. And there's something really important but, about- But through that, right? right? Through that, through the connection, exactly. you did fix something. People exactly. felt better. They felt less stressed. And Exactly. So I was just going to say, I think the moments of of kind of exceptional courage in my life was a combination of- of need, you know, I had, I had a desperate need. I, I didn't, I wasn't going to have a place to live and I couldn't stay in that relationship anymore. And so I did this kind of epic thing in my life, but that didn't happen in isolation. That courageous moment was fed by this family that believed in me and encouraged me and saw something in myself, believed in me before I could believe in myself. And, and that gave me that combination of, of need and encouragement, um, plus my own personal fortitude and, and desire to like be, be successful some way, even if I didn't quite know how, um, helped me take that crazy step. I want to, to touch back on the rape only just momentarily. Who was the, first person you talked to finally whenever you did about oh it gosh. and 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 how did that go I mean was it this family was it Karen and her husband uh or was it I don't think I ever my first moment talking about it I wrote an article about it I didn't talk oh. to anybody about it yeah so while, while I was 
living at Trinity, I was also, I was writing for, I had a lot of jobs. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> there's, I have only scratched the surface clearly of some of the amazing things you've done, but like, oh yes. And I was also a writer there while I was there. Yeah. I keep forgetting all the stuff I did. I, well, I was trying to stay busy. Um, I worked at the Women's Center. I have some hilarious Women's Center stories. I worked at the Women's Center. I wrote their um, regular newsletter and then I was also writing editorials for the campus paper, the Trinity Tripod. And um, I was a women's studies major. So here I'm surrounded by um, this world where we're really talking about things like sexual assault and consent and in different ways than when mm-hmm. um, I was dealing with that stuff in 1985. And it, it, it didn't give me the courage to talk to someone face to face about it yet, but I was writing a lot. And so I wrote about it. I wrote an article for the the Trinity Tripod about it. And um, that was kind of how I came out with that story. And then subsequently people, you know, approached me about it. And I would start talking to people in my life. And I think Karen was probably one of the first people I did tell um, when I was talking about it after I kind of wrote about it. And the weird thing about like writing about it that seems obviously that's very exposing in front of a much bigger audience, but I wasn't looking them in the eye. So it was almost, it was a shield in a way to kind of, but I felt that need to kind of get that out there and and really recognize for the first time in my life, how that that was actually a big deal. That wasn't, that wasn't a small thing. Um, And I I think that was part of keeping safe was when these really big things happened in my life, trying somehow to make them smaller, like it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, Part of the, the denial of it. Yeah. The human spirit, the mind, the gut, mm-hmm. the instinct will do what's ever required to keep you safe. And I guess yeah. for a number of years, that's what that was. Yeah. So I'm very excited to talk about an education in prudence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I understand that mm-hmm. you wrote mm-hmm. the senior seminar, th- your senior seminar thesis, and mm-hmm. it was award-winning, apparently. Yes. Challenging Race and Gender Boundaries in Antebellum America, which was all about Prudence Crandall. So how did you learn about, get inspired by, want to write about Mm. Prudence Crandall? So I first, I had that same experience where I first heard about her from another academic. So I was in my um, Women's Studies 101 class and my professor, Joan Hedrick, uh, it was a survey of women's history and, and women's rights, and she mentioned the Prudence Crandall story, and I, I got very curious about it. So I started doing research. Um, my other like super geeky thing, I love archives and like primary source documents, places where you have to wear gloves and um, you can't bring a pen in. So I, I love that kind of stuff. So I, I started reading more about Prudence's history. And I decided to take that on as a senior project, which was a couple years after I first got introduced to her. Um, so, and it, do you want me to tell the story of Prudence like really quickly? Oh, for sure, because I was talking to you, Beth Miller, or about <laughs> to about Brave, and then it turns out that this award-winning senior seminar thesis is mm-hmm. about an incredibly brave woman, and I guess. Mm-hmm. 
It was yesterday because I was doing my research and sticking all my notes all over my wall in my office to talk mm-hmm. to you. And I thought, what an incredible thing to learn all about on International Women's Day is right. Prudence Crandall. So yeah, please, let's right. do the cool notes <laughs> of this woman because I would like everybody to understand the backstory on this. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, Prudence was, uh, first of all, I love her name. It's perfect for this story. Um, Prudence was raised as a, a Quaker in Rhode Island, later moved to Connecticut. Uh, she became a teacher uh, and she was awarded a, um, well, given the principalship of the Canterbury School. So this was a new school created just for uh, the, the wealthier folks in this town for their girls. So mm-hmm. at this time in American history and the education movement, um, the young women were, it was seen as a sign of high class or upper class for young women to be schooled, to be schooled to be good wives to the men who were graduating. we're talking about 1833-ish kind of time Correct. frame? 1833. So 30 years before the Civil War. Um, this is, uh, so they're learning to be good helpmeets to their educated husbands so they can be presentable at gatherings and things like that. So this is a huge opportunity for, for Prudence. It's the very beginning of her career. And now she's got this principalship of this school of all the landed gentry in the area and, um, everything's going swimmingly. And a young, uh, black woman, uh, came and asked if she would, um, could, could attend class. Now her father, uh, Sarah's father was a um, well-known farmer in the area. So um, this is Canterbury, Connecticut. He had some regard. You know, people got his produce. Things were friendly. Um, She started going to classes. Um, Originally, Prudence said, we can't do that. Um, And I have some research that suggests, I think I know why she changed her mind. Um, She was reading issues of the abolitionist and uh, which is the the uh, or the liberator which is the greatest uh, you know abolitionist tract at the time and um published by William Lloyd Garrison and I think that kind of lit a fire for her and she saw Sarah as her opportunity to kind of do something for for young women of color um so she admitted her to the school and everything was fine the other girls accepted her they knew her from the town they knew her father um, but then the, the townsfolk found out and that just wouldn't, wouldn't do. So the first thing that happened was she got a visit from kind of the mothers saying, you know, this won't do, you have to eject Sarah. And she said, you know, she wouldn't. And then the, uh, the town fathers, uh, the board members of the school came and told her, you know, you had to shut it down or else they were going to close her down. And then the term ended, and what she did instead of closing down is she went to Boston and met with William Lloyd Garrison, the publisher of The Liberator, and they took out an article, and she decided to change, exchange her white her white students for colored, is the, how the article read. So she basically wow. ejected all of the white girls and admitted only black girls, and William Lloyd Garrison was connected to a lot of um, black families with girls, um, moms that ran rooming houses and things like that, so very... Some of them had money and some of them were partially, you know, pretty good, pretty well educated, had good business sense. So they recruited women from all over Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Connecticut and young black women who went to the school. And then the the town went nuts. It just absolutely, you know, out of control. This is slaveholding America um, and the school that they built to train their posh white girls is now being completely for it's completely for young black women and people just lost their minds so it ended up becoming um kind of a national case 
uh, because you had abolitionists on one side arguing for um, states' rights for blacks, um, which obviously called, called into the question the, the slavery issue, and and folks who said, you know, not in my town, you're you're ruining property values, was one of the things that came up. Oh, um, yep, <laughs> stuff we hear still. Uh, so. So the thing that, you know, as I agree with this story, too, that the hardest part about the story, there was so little about these young women. I mean, Prudence was was brave to do that. Yes, but... Oh, 1833? We're talking brave with the biggest capital B ever. Yep, yep. And she's she's 30, so she's a spinster. Um, she, she ended up getting male support from others, but, you know, she's kind of out there on her own. Um, the thing that's important through the lens of now and looking at that story, people often talk about prudence, but they don't talk a lot, a lot about these young women who who yeah. were physically attacked because they were black and the courage of their mothers and fathers to let them make what was a political stand and put themselves directly in harm way, harm's way. Um, rocks thrown at them regularly, eggs thrown at them regularly. Um, the house was, they tried to set the house on fire. Um, in the end, there were some court cases that went back and forth um, there were three court cases and the, the last court case, um, basically the state of Connecticut was trying to get them disbanded and, and get them thrown out, um, people on the opposite side and then abolitionists were fighting. So it became very politicized, uh, as it should have been. Um, in the end, the court kind of made a non-decision. So it was kind of not sure whether the school was going to continue or not. And then the night of that verdict, the, um, townspeople literally smashed out the whole first floor of the house with, um, with, you know, two by fours and sledgehammers and things like that. I mean, if you can imagine, this is not a huge house and the girls are all living there. If you can imagine how... It's a museum now, I think. It's a museum now, correct, correct. Um, And it was a boarding school. So these, Mm -hmm. how old would these girls have been, Beth? Like They they weren't super young. No, they were more high school. We would consider them high school and early college. So they were a little bit older. And this is one of the things I talked about in my paper. You know, when you romanticize these racist, you know, incidences, you tend to make the heroines more vulnerable, right? So they would talk to the girls like like they were not. They were not nine years old. These are 16 years old and older. Um, So not that that's that old, but it's not a nine-year-old. Very different. So, and, and that was part of what I argued in the paper is that we don't need to make them more more victimy to make this they more horrible <laughs> just as victimized mm-hmm. at 16 as they would have been if you made them nine. exactly right and they went in as warriors yes they wanted their their educations but they knew they were they knew that they were walking into a battle and they should get that credit um so so yeah so that that's what happened with the case after they smashed out the um the house, um, the school was disbanded. There's some unsurety about whether Prudence said we can't do this anymore, if the girls said that's enough or or what, but it, it didn't go on. Um, I In my research, I went back to the school and they told me they had recently uh, dug out a path for a handicap access to the, um, to the museum and they found all the smashed out windows and stuff buried on the property. Oh, so they used to wow. bury trash right on the property, but they found all the smashed out things from the house um, buried right there on the property. So, yeah, Prudence ended up um, marrying a terrible man who was abusive. Oh, no. Yep. Didn't have a happy ending. She moved around quite a bit, ended up in uh, Kansas, um, and uh, she she passed there. She lived to a ripe old age. um, 
And Mark Twain uh, came to know her story. Uh, Mark Twain, his second house was in Hartford, Connecticut, or his first house was in, first house that he built was in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I also worked at the Mark Twain House and Museum, so there was an interesting intersection here. He struck up a correspondence with Prudence saying, you know, how much he loved her story. And Prudence was a hoot. She's like, he's like, I would, you know, if you'd like to, I'd love to send you a book. And she sent the list of all the books she wanted from him signed. (laughs) And I got my hands on that. Uh, on that letter. So. Prudence, the trailblazer here, Absolutely. for sure. And you want to up... send me a book? Here's the list of 12 that I want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so she and Mark Twain had um, a, struck up a friendship, and he actually went to the Connecticut State Legislature and argued before the Connecticut State Legislature and said, you did this woman wrong. You owe her a stipend. And he won a, a stipend from, from the state of Connecticut for her elder years so that she could live in relative comfort. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't yeah. know that part of the story. Yeah. I didn't know Mark Twain was involved in this. I didn't even expect we were going to chat about Mark Twain. <laughs> Mark Twain wow. was involved in it. <laughs> yeah. So let's jump to the play. Let's. Yeah. So I understand that this then became an open theater project. Correct. Yes. And your director was Stefan Lanfer. Correct. Who's a white male. Yes. Who faced, I believe, all kinds of internal conflict around trying to direct put together this live performance mm-hmm. through the eyes of black students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, he um, he spent a lot of time with this. And I, I don't want to overstate um, overstate my role in this because it, it wasn't that big. Um, I really, my big, big courageous moment with the play was that I handed my work over to, to Stefan and said, you know, do what you will with it. Um, but at the very beginning, he was trying to follow um, my history, what I wrote to tell the mm-hmm. story, which is mm-hmm. which is told by white people. So it's very prudent centric. It's very centered on Andrew Judson and other and William Lloyd Garrison and the white men who figured in it because that's how we tell our history. We don't tell all of our history. Um, and he kept getting stuck. And he's he's a very he's an amazing man. Um, and he he understood the importance of making sure that there was. Um, that perspective of women of color, that we needed to pay attention to that thread. Um, so the the project stalled. He had a, quite a few drafts for a couple of years because he was tied to my history. And then when he was able to break from the kind of chronological narrative and mm-hmm. shift the point of view, um, it changed everything. And it came together like it right at the right time. It was, it was the summer of, um, it was like well between 2016 and 2017 when it showed and, you know, Trump gets elected and there's all the Black Lives Matter and all this mm-hmm. stuff was was coalescing. And I remember sitting with him at the Playhouse and being like, we both looked at each other and we're like, this couldn't have happened before now. You know, like we, we were both frustrated that it wasn't getting off the ground and we realized there had to be that real break in how to tell the story. Um, and, and I think that's the tough thing between a kind of nonfiction historical representation, which I wrote, and the fictionalized um, stage performance he was trying to create. And that when what my job was to go into the archives and find every little piece of minutiae and spread it out. When you right. tell a narrative on stage or on film, you have to compress the history, which is why it's very painful for historians because you end up kind of creating amalgamations of characters. And and we you just spent all this time down. Right. Yeah. So I had to say. You do what you think you need to do. And what he came up with, I, it was it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was faithful to the story, and it gave the spotlight to the right characters for the first time. 
And so, Beth, were you were you there on? <laughs> I imagine you were. Were you there on opening uh, night? So I'm picturing a stage with a curtain opening, and there you are, maybe in the front row, and and really and seeing it all come to life, all based on the thesis that you wrote. Yeah. So, well, it was is a you know community theater that happened in a church. So I don't want to make it sound like we were you know at the opera house in Boston or anything like that. But. Um, <laughs> I was there most nights, <laughs> most every night. Um, I was, it was so cathartic for me. So Prudence had lived with me from that, Prudence lived with me through that time at Trinity College. You know, that project became her courage and the courage of the students and, and Sarah. And um, that gave me courage. Like I came from a lineage mm. of women who forged ahead um, in troubling times. So that became... Um, you know, a beacon for me in some ways. So, and and when the story was done, I just felt so, for years, just like how we don't learn all of our history. You know, we're not learning about these women and we're not learning about everyone who's built the history. We, we whitewash quite literally all of our history and we're missing so much. And what gets, we get robbed of so much because we lose the example. You know, Prudence wasn't the first courageous person. Those were not the first courageous young black women. Not the first. And, you know, to just be discovering folks like that in the year 2000 was was shameful. It's shameful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we have a lot of work to do. And, you know, Prudence and the students, they they just haunted me for a lot of years. I'm like, more people need to see this story. And Mm -hmm. um, so when it got staged, it was, I cried the whole opening night. It was just so cathartic to introduce more people to who they were and, and what Stefan was able to do by putting the, the black students front and center and compressing the white male characters. It was just perfect and beyond what I could have done. Um, and it, it just, it, it was just cathartic in a way. I still think there's life in the story yet. I think it could be a major film. Oh, but. <laughs> oh abs- absolutely. And so I, I, how long did it run in the church? They extended it. They had to do a couple more weeks. Um, so I think it was, I don't, it feels like so long ago now, six or eight weeks it ran. I think it was slotted for like like four weeks and they added a couple more because um, it was just, uh, every night was packed. So yeah, we got and really the, good And reviews. the response from the audience, I mean... Really powerful. Prudence was new to them because Prudence was actually in... So anyone in Connecticut would know Prudence Crandall's. So we're in Boston. So um, pretty dominated by, um, by colonial history and um, yeah. a, a rich array of amazing characters up here in Boston. So this was a new story for a lot of folks uh, in the Boston area. And uh, yeah, we had a lot of really great conversations. And, and you know, we had to face, here's Stefan and I sitting up there, two white folks um, presenting this story um, about Black lives. And uh, that was, we had some powerful conversations about that and our discomfort with that. And then, yeah. st- but also feeling like I really wanted to get, this was the story I wrote back in the time and I wanted to get it out there. Um, we were very, we had a, um, our director was a black woman, our dramaturg was a black woman. Like, so we were very conscious about the folks that helped produce it. And Stefan really, really listened. Um, again, I was just kind of historical support. I really wasn't a big part of that, but I uh, got to know all of the the actresses and the actors very well. And um, everyone on, who had a part in that production really got it, really got what we were trying to do. Wow. <laughs> so how, how did you find your way from there 
Mm-hmm. To the Creative Education Foundation. If I don't know how that path unfolds, but yeah. let's loop it back to what you're doing now. So, how did you go from there, Trinity College, and mm-hmm. this incredible production that you were a tiny little part of, yeah. to yeah. what you're doing now? So, I was at I'm at Trinity, finishing my bachelor's degree, get all these awards for the Prudence paper, and I was offered a graduate fellowship at Trinity to uh, create a writing tutoring program for grad students. And that came with a free master's degree. So I couldn't pass that up. Um, it only came with I 200 I can just feel your father. I can feel your father smiling. Not only a BA, yeah. now she's going for the MA. Oh, yep. so exciting. And uh, they only paid $200 a month, which wasn't enough to live on at age 31. Right. So I moved back in with Karen and Mark. And they supported me while I worked on the master's program. Uh, while I was doing that, uh, I majored in American studies. I got a call from the uh, Trinity Development Department. They were working on a very big grant for uh, development that they were doing, a learning center they were doing. And they asked, they said, I heard you're a good writer. Can you help us write this grant? I'm like, sure. So I took a contract job writing grants. And then I got a call from the English department and they said, we'd like you to teach English 101. So I went from nearly homeless undergrad to member of the faculty (laughs) within about a year. Um, So I was a visiting lecturer in English 101. And I was writing grants for Trinity. And that kind of started that dual nonprofit fundraising writing career. Um, I decided I hated nonprofits and I stopped doing that. And I was just being an adjunct writer. So I was, the tough thing about being adjunct faculty is uh, you don't get any benefits. You know, I only had a master's degree. I didn't have a PhD. So there's no chance of me getting a tenure position. Um, So I'm cobbling together a career between Trinity College, Southern Connecticut State University and Quinnipiac University, driving basically all over Connecticut to try to make as much money as I can. And English 101 is typically mostly taught in the fall semester. So I'd be mm-hmm. have tons of work in the fall semester, a little bit in the spring, and then nothing all summer. Um, so it was very difficult. Um, I ended up getting recruited for another development job uh, at a place called Riverfront Recapture, which is in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, they have done exactly what their title says. They've reclaimed the riverfront in the city of Hartford. And they hired me as a uh, development manager, basically grant writer. And that kind of put me on my professional trajectory as a nonprofit professional. And um, I went from there to the Hartford Youth Scholars uh, Foundation, um, with whom I'm still very tied. And I know a lot of young people in that program still. And then I got recruited for the Mark Twain House and Museum. Um, And by this time, I'm a development director. So I'm leading fundraising uh, strategy for these organizations and um, which requires a lot of writing. Uh, so it fits yeah. into my writing and a, a passion for the project. So these are all um, educational organizations and historic organizations. So that's all in my wheelhouse as well. Um, plus the, the charm from my dad talking people to, into giving me their money. Um, <laughs> and over the course of this, with the exception of the Mark Twain house, I had a series of really bad bosses. And as I'm, I'm watching these folks, I'm like, wow, these are, these are nonprofits. They're on the front lines of our most critical social issues. And the, the management sucks. Like this is, they're not, they're just, they're under-resourced. And a lot of it was they weren't trained and whatever, but I'm yeah. just, I felt like I could do better. And I ended up taking a job with Boston Debate League up here in Boston, got recruited away from the Mark Twain house. And um, I ended up with another really crappy boss. <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, I, why can't I, first of all, why am I not getting promoted? Because I think I'm good. And I just can't, I can't do this anymore. And I, um, I stopped working and I took a job, I took a fellowship with Third, Se- Third Sector New England um, and they do executive director placements. And I was doing some fundraising consulting with them. 
And I knew that I wanted to be an executive director. So I took all of the folks that did executive director placements. I took them out to lunch. And I said, I said, why am I not getting promoted? You know, I, I, I couldn't ignore the fact anymore that I was not I was the common denominator, even though I thought I was a great fundraiser. I didn't get a leg up at the Mark Twain house when that job came up there. I didn't get the leg up at the Harvard Youth Scholars job. And I'm like, all right, I'm the common denominator. Why do they not see me as a leader? Mm -hmm. Um, So I stepped way back and asked people, I said, give me the critique. Tell me what it is. And they talked to me about how to interview for an executive director job versus a a, fundraising job, how to present my resume. Um, and I, the next job I applied for was executive director of the Creative Education Foundation, and I got it. So uh, here I am. It's six, almost seven years later. Um, I've brought to bear a lot of what I've learned from what, what to do and what not to do from past bosses and mm-hmm. managing, you know, not just the development function, but there's a lot of operations. I was on senior leadership teams for all of those organizations. So very involved with board governance and operations and all of those things. And I brought that all to CEF. Um, and what, what the creative education was chock-a-block with were great creative minds, but they yes. didn't have anybody who knew how to run a nonprofit, which is what yeah. I knew. I'm like, you don't, need, you don't need more creative people. You've got that, you know? So what you need is somebody who knows what laws you have to be following and how to do fundraising and all those really, really not sexy things. Um, and it was, it was a bit of a transition when I first came into the organization, um, I think they thought maybe I was just going to fundraise. And I'm like, no, I want, I'm going to do the whole thing. And I'm really happy to say um, we're stronger than ever. Our, our fundraising is, is great. We just got a really big gift from the, the founding uh, family. The Parnes family just gave us $100,000 um, in support for the I organization. Read that. Yeah, um, I read huge. that. I had the, I had the p- pleasure once yeah. of meeting Sid before he passed. Oh, and I had yeah. lunch with B once yeah, uh, at my yeah. table at Sipsy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I read because I subscribe and I'm a, you know, I'm a member, I'm yeah. a everything with Sipsy. So I read that. So that's mm-hmm. brilliant. And congratulations for Thank that. Thank you. It's, you know, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. The money's great. But um, the vote of confidence uh, from the family, like that, that was huge for me. That they, that they trusted me. They believe in the vision. They believe in the work that's happened. And it hasn't happened, you know, in isolation. The board of directors we have is amazing. Uh, our team is outstanding. Um, we just really have have built something very strong. And so even when the pandemic hit, we were on the second year of, of a really positive, you know, cash flow and, and things were very, very mm-hmm. strong. So it was a little heartbreaking. I'm like, damn, I thought I could rest on my laurels for a little bit. But then like, nope, pandemic. I'm like, just for like a couple months, that would be awesome. Nope, we're going to have to change everything. Um, but because we had practiced creative problem solving as part of how we ran the organization, we're fluent in it. So when we were faced with a, a complicated challenge, we were able to address it with confidence and, um, and you know, help, asking for help. And, and we got it. And I, now we have, we have year-round curriculum. So we went virtual and we did such a great conference. People said, can you teach us how to do this? So we started teaching people how to do great virtual sessions, which became a new revenue stream for us. And then we kind of broke open that whole arena of doing virtual training. And so now we have curriculum year-round for virtual training. And we're also doing virtual training gigs with um, other nonprofits and companies because we broke open through that that virtual Good training. So if we hadn't had to do the virtual conference, yeah. we would have never opened up that revenue. So 
Um, I'm at the point now where we're getting calls to do applied improv and other training for folks. And I'm, I'm pretty close to having to say, uh, wait till we're going to have to wait till July because we're getting, we have a very small yeah. team and it's, it's busy. So, but that's a nice problem to have Beth. And I've oh done, um, a couple <laughs> yes. of your virtual trainings mm-hmm. because like you and I, you know, I practice creative problem solving and mm-hmm. I'm a speaker and I'm a trainer and I'm a facilitator. Everything mm-hmm. had to go online. So I look to you guys to train me how to be the most engaging possible, um, you know, facilitator and your, the courses you're running are brilliant and fabulous and, and I've learned a ton. So it's the gift that, you know, the gift that we get from some of the struggles that are thrown in our way. Absolutely. Well, and it's, you know, that's Beth and Missy, my, my coworkers. Um, they're amazing. They're, they're amazing. And we get a lot of help um, from members of our board who will volunteer their time to help us kind of build, you know, stretch our capacity a little bit. Um, but, you know, we really believe that the more creativity there is out in the world, um, the more demand there will be for it. And we think there's, we have a very open arms approach to what we offer. Um, and we want to see more collaboration and partnership. And we're talking now about doing some master's classes because really oh. one of the, yeah, one of the things I've looked at is when I'm looking at our programs, we mostly serve people who are new to deliberate creativity, right? Yeah. So we get lots and lots of novices, and a lot of those people turn into devotees, and then those are the folks like you who come back and teach for us, right? Yeah. But we're not we're not feeding you guys anything, right? So there's no. Kind I'd be of, I'd, I'd be first in line for that, right? Absolutely. Exactly. And I think there's so many of us that I di- I have taught for you, and mm-hmm. I loved it. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of the coin, I didn't love it. I didn't love it because yes. I wanted to be the student. Yes. I didn't want to think about my delivery and the value that I was hopefully creating for the people in my session and Mm -hmm. I I wanted to experience it and I did and then I'm like no I want to be a student so I think a lot of us would love the opportunity of going to sort of a a a master class level and 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 learning and that's one of the things with the virtual conference last Mm -hmm. year was just even getting sent into breakout rooms with some of these epic folks that I have taken classes with in the past was like oh my god I'm I'm in a breakout room with these people and I get to just sponge off their knowledge. It's fantastic. Exactly right. I think that's the that's the next frontier I'm looking at for CEF. Like really, we have brilliant people in our community and, you know, let's let's share that and, you know, smaller gatherings with, you know, how can we push push the creativity volunteer, uh, you know, the frontier of creativity. We've got the right folks and my team knows how to hold a space and create a conference. So let's oh, use yes. our let's use our gifts and and see if we can push creativity learning even further. Amazing. So I am going to wrap us up in just a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, the best advice you've ever received, I've, mm. I found that somewhere. Hope is a beggar. Mm. <laughs> and I've never heard this before. Hope is a beggar. Have faith. Hope walks through the fire, but faith leaps over it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That inspired me. Yeah. Um, I, I remember, I remember, um, a, a board chair telling me once I was, right. It was a, a response to a fundraising letter. And I wrote something like, I hope you'll donate this year. And he said, never write hope, um, assume the gift, <laughs> assume the gift. And, and that's part of it. I think hope is important because it can give you a safe place to rest in a, in a, a beleaguered time. Um, but that moment of faith, um, that was, you know, 
being a grown woman where my friends are married and having children and have careers and I'm moving into a first year dormitory. That was a leap of faith. Like I didn't even know. People would ask me, what are you going to do with a women's studies degree? I'm like, I have no idea. I had no idea. I had I, I, nothing. I just, all I knew is I was just going to put my head down and work and figure it out. Um, I moved up here to Boston. I bought a condo. My f- husband was unemployed and I started over. And um, I could have lost everything. And that was terrifying. But I I felt like I could be a good leader. And I'm like, all right, what do I need to do? How do I need to be self-reflective to make that, actualize that in my life? And I did it. Um, so it's those moments where, you know, if you had nothing, what would you do if you had nothing to lose? And I've had a couple of those moments where I came to, well, I don't have anything else to lose. So let's do it. Yeah. And that's not a moment that feels good. That's a scary moment. No. Um, but it's a brave moment. It's a brave moment. Beth, you are a gift, hmm? an absolute gift. So my final question for you is how can we, the folks that will tune into this and listen yeah. to this, hopefully, and pass it along to their friends and their friends, mm-hmm. how can we support you? How can we support the wonderful things you're doing, and this is this is your brazen opportunity to make a list of twelve books to ask Mark Twain for. <laughs> type, type of question. So, how can we support you, Beth? Oh, come to Sipsy. <laughs> come okay. to Sipsy. Um, I, I would say to everyone: know first of all that you are creative, and know that you are brave. Um, even if it doesn't always feel like that, I I guarantee you are. Um, and uh, we want to work with more people. Uh, we believe that if the world is a more creative place and more people learn to be deliberately creative at younger ages and more consistently through their lives, the whole world is going to be better. And we believe this this is at our, at our heart and our soul. Um, a great way to start and a fun way to start is to go to the Creative Problem Solving Institute. Um, our website is www.cpsiconference.org. Um, and we're selling tickets right now. Uh, the virtual conference is $350, um, and it's a three weeks long of, of um, curriculum, <laughs> and it's all recorded. So, like, if you have a big meeting, the time when the thing you wanted to see was, that's okay, you're going to get the recording. Um, so it's a really great deal and a great intro to creative problem solving. I, as a person who's kind of failed out of college twice, am very passionate about education, and I do believe uh, creativity can be transformative in our public schools. Um, so we do trainings for school teachers. If this, if you are a teacher or an administrator, um, you know, I would love to hear from you. We're working with a school district right now, the Manchester Essex Regional School District, and we're bringing them through creative problem solving and a world cafe to help them build a strategic plan to really integrate creativity into their school. We're extremely excited about that and we want to do more. So if you want to check out the other programs we offer aside from SIPSI, uh, you can find us at www.creativeeducationfoundation.org. And that's all spelled all the way out, which is <laughs> a lot of typing, but it'll get you there. And we just launched a new website, which is very pretty. So come check it, it out. It is very pretty. <laughs> oh, Beth. Thank you. I, I really don't know how to thank you for, oh. for the gifts you've given us today. It's been so lovely chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. And um, keep doing this brave, courageous, wonderful work that you're doing. And thank you so much for openly sharing your stories with us. So appreciate it. Thank you, Marilyn, for this opportunity and for um, for providing a way for the story to come out. I think it's important that we tell our stories. It was my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at MarilynBarefoot.com. 
That's it for today. See you next time.